Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, hosted on July 27th, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... So you turn on a machine uh, by making a protein, and then you have to turn it off. So I, I liken it to, a, to, a, to an orchestra in a symphony. You have The cell is a huge orchestra with thousands of players. They are the proteins. That's Avram Hershko. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2004. If you listened last week, you know that I was recently in Lindau, Germany for the 61st Annual Lindau Nobel Laureate Meeting, which this year featured laureates in physiology or medicine and in chemistry. 23 Nobel winners lectured and schmoozed with more than 550 graduate students or postdoctoral fellows at the beginning of their scientific careers. And I had a chance to catch up to a few of the laureates between events, interviews I'll be rolling out over the next few weeks. Later in this episode, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Marriott Christina talks about the Google Science Fair, but first up is Avram Hershko. He shared the Nobel for the discovery of the systems whereby cells break down proteins. We spoke, as you'll easily be able to tell, in the restaurant next to the Inselhalle, the site of the Lindau meeting. When you were doing your work, for which you were awarded the Nobel Prize, everybody was looking at the synthesis of proteins, and you went with very few other people in a different direction to look at the degradation of proteins. Is that is that your nature to go in the place where no one else is or was that was it something specific about this problem that caught your attention? Well, it's not my nature. <laughs> but in science I think that you should find unique problems and uh, and you find you should find a niche which is not in the mainstream. I believe in that, especially for young investigators. Uh, because uh, to go with the mainstream, uh, it's not so great, you know. You are uh, People are already interested in that. And if you want to make a discovery, you should find something unique, uh, 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 which is not yet in the mainstream. It will be later on, but it, but it is not yet in the mainstream. So proteins were important. That was known. There are the so-called machines of the cells. If you know about DNA, DNA is the genetic information. It is nearly the blueprint, but it is a blueprint for making proteins. So proteins were known to be important. And, of course, it's very important to know how proteins are made based on the genetic information. But it was already known that some proteins are degraded and it was clear that you can have in important control mechanisms by it. So it was an important, I recognize that it's an important problem, but not yet in the interest of, uh, in, of the mainstream of science. So I thought it was a good problem. So it's not in my nature, but I think it's a good idea for young investigators to look for unique problems which are important, but not yet in the mainstream. Now, the reason why it's important that proteins can not only be assembled, but be taken apart, is there's machinery in the cells that should not be there except under special circumstances. Yes, that's correct. So there are two main reasons. One is to get rid of of bad, bad proteins. So proteins... Uh, have to, after they are made, they have to fold in a certain, uh, uh, to a certain shape. And the shape is actually important for their functions. When they, when they are defective, they have to be removed because they can get in the way of the good proteins. So, so abnormal proteins have to be removed. 
So that's one important function, to remove damaged proteins. But protein degradation is not just a waste disposal to remove damaged proteins. It's also like a switch. So you turn on a machine uh, by making a protein, and then you have to turn it off. So I, I liken it to, a, to, a, to an orchestra in a symphony. You have The cell is a huge orchestra with thousands of players. They are the proteins. A certain, uh, a certain uh, player has to pay, play a tune at a certain time, then it has to stop. If it doesn't stop, he ruins the symphony. So the stopping is, is, is very important also. That is the, uh, the regulation part of, 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 of the functions of protein degradation. So examples of the kinds of cellular apparatus that have to be turned off would be, for example, during mitosis. You don't want mitotic machinery around all the time. Yes, actually I worked on this problem after, after we found out uh, uh, the basic machinery, how does it work. Uh, as an example, I, I looked at, at an important role of protein degradation in cell division and some regulators of cell division are made before mitosis, before the cell divides, but then they have to be turned off in order to get out of mitosis. And that turning off of, of some proteins called cyclins that were discovered by another Nobel Prize laureate, uh, Tim Hunt. So the turning off of, of, of these uh, these regulators is done by the degradation at, at, at exactly the, the time the right time uh, of the cell cycle when it has to be degraded. And we have certain uh, compounds that are uh, therapies today, certain medicines that work by interfering with the breakdown of, of proteinaceous structures. Yes, as, as uh, usually happens in science, you know, uh, scientists uh, are doing fundamental science or basic science. They are trying to understand how nature works. But eventually, all this knowledge will help in the development. It will help mankind. So it's a lengthy process. In our case, it took uh, more than 30 years. But eventually, all this knowledge was is now being converted to drugs uh, that are effective. There are already one drug that inhibits a certain enzyme in the system, the proteasome. It is very effective uh, against a certain cancer, bone marrow cancer called multiple myeloma. And this drug actually changed uh, uh, the treatment. It, it revolutionized the treatment of multiple myeloma together with some other developments. Uh, so now uh, many people uh, can have many more years of good quality life, and I am very happy about that. Which drug is that? Uh, the name, I don't want to advertise it, <laughs> but the name is Bortezomib or Velcade, uh, uh, and it is a proteasome inhibitor uh, used uh, for uh, the treatment of multiple myeloma. So yesterday, when you were talking directly to the students, you talked about how research should be fun and exciting. Yes, I believe in that. I, I think that discoveries... Uh, the, the main motivation for discoveries is curiosity. You should uh, you should be curious like a child, and you should try to uh, to satisfy your curiosity. You should be excited for what we are doing, uh, what what you are doing. And I told that to the to the students because there are also a lot of chores. I call them, you know, in science we have to 
to, to, to publish papers, we have to, to fill grant applications, and all this is very important, but we should not let, and I tell that again and again, because that's the daily life, we should not let our, uh, uh, our work be dominated by our chores. These have to be done, but uh, our, our work should be directed by the, uh, by, by, by doing exciting work of trying to find out uh, uh, things that, that arouse our curiosity. That is the way discoveries are made. You mentioned grants. I wanted to just briefly discuss the fact that you have uh, at times been funded through what are called foreign grants from the United States National Institutes of Health. And I, I think some people might not know that the U.S. government funds research in other countries. And we have people in America who don't even want the, the NIH to fund Americans. So could you talk about what the NIH's funding of foreign researchers enables around the world? Yes, I see that you did your homework. Because I, I, I actually, in my biography, I, I, I thank the NIH for the very generous help, you know. That is, these are American taxpayers who, who helped me do this research. And I, I hope that now, now it is being given back to the American people by, for example, by using these, uh, these uh, new drugs that are based, based on our research. So, uh, uh, there, uh, the, for the research grants in Israel are very small. Uh, uh, about now, now there are about forty thousand dollars a year. When I started, it was ten thousand dollars a year. Now, uh, that is not not much, <laughs> or not, not 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 really enough to do work. So I was looking for other sources, and actually, some American friends knew about this foreign research uh, program of the NIH and. Uh, advised me to, to 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 apply for an NIH grant which is not easy to get also the foreign research grants are not as as, as big as the america as, as the grants for americans but they are sizable it was really uh, significant so even though i i was kind of uh, doubtful whether <laughs> why should american uh, people you know uh, support foreign scientists i applied for it and i got it and i must say i got it for five consecutive uh, grant periods, so, so it was three years, another three years, another three. That it went on for 15 years, and I think that was crucial for all the discoveries that I made. That help of the of, of the NIH. So I think the American taxpayers should know about it. It is not uh, not given out easily. It is given out only to for for things that that the NIH thinks that uh, there is some knowledge or there is some. Uh, some expertise uh, that is outside of America, and I, in that case, I guess that's what 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 the committees uh, decided. So I, I am very grateful for that. Uh, but uh, but it does help uh, uh, in certain cases uh, uh, work uh, scientific work and basic research in, the, in in that case outside of America, uh, and I think that is not only very nice. I think it's very wise because that is a, one way uh, to uh, to help mankind, uh, as it turned out in this case. So I am very grateful to the NIH, and I am very grateful to the American taxpayers for for helping this work. As one of them, I, let me speak for everybody, which I shouldn't do, but, but let me speak for the taxpayers. We're grateful to, to you for your work as well. Yeah, um, it is really thousands of people now who, who, who are treated with this drug and, 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 and greatly benefit from them. So. That's great.
Um, I just want to wrap up uh, your your last line from your official Nobel biography. Uh-huh. Is um, it's a bittersweet kind of understatement where you say you talk about you know the the, the wonderful life you have now and and the, the research you did and the excitement of it and the sense of satisfaction and then you say if only there was some peace in the world I would be completely satisfied. Yes, uh, I think you omitted three words there. Uh, as I remember, I wrote, uh, including between Israelis and neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have, we are living in a very troubled work, uh, world. You know, we have really grave, grave problems. Uh, uh, you know, we are facing crisis in the, the economy, in, in energy availability. Uh, all these are, 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 are really nothing uh, as compared to the animosity that, that, that there are, that exists between different cultures, different uh, natures, and we should done more about, we should do more about trying to, 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 to decrease this animosity and to, to bring about more peace. Now, how is done, that is beyond my, <laughs> beyond my control, but uh, I, I'm definitely uh, trying to uh, uh, to join uh, different efforts for 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 making peace. So uh, yeah, I, I say that I was very lucky uh, in my life, in my personal life, in my scientific life. Uh, but I would be even happier if more was was done for peace among nations. Let's also. There's a great story you tell about meeting your wife. You literally bumped into your wife. Who was working in a hospital for a year? Yes, uh, so that is one of my lucks. Uh, I was a, a medical student, and uh, I, I needed some sample of, of, of blood for my for my research. The research that I, I did as a medical student. So I went over to the hematology lab, and uh, it turned out Judy, my wife of forty-seven years now. Uh, uh, was came over from Switzerland for a year to to to, the, to 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 work and to live in Israel for a while. She wanted uh, to to be just a visit, and uh, she held a tray, of <laughs> and uh, I bumped off the tray, not intentionally, <laughs> but then I helped her to pick it up, you know, like in some old movies, and uh, that was the beginning of, of a lifelong association and of. Uh, of, of, of having a wonderful family of three children and six grandchildren. Next up, Maria Cristina. She's the editor-in-chief of Scientific American. She was recently a judge at the first Google Science Fair. This was the first year Google had a science fair, and they did a virtual science fair, of course, because it's Google. And it was launched in January of this year, and it was a world open to every student around the globe, 13 to 18. So they had three age categories, 13 to 14, 15 to 16, and 17 to 18. And Google drew 7,500 applications from 91 countries, which is really excellent for a first year out. 
And you were one of the judges. I was one of the judges. So the idea here was that students could enter their science fair projects. And, you know, many students would like to participate in science fairs, but they don't do them in their schools or in many countries. It's not such a tradition as it is here in the U.S. too. So it sort of opens new doors for people to be able to display their things using free Google tools. So the students could, you know, Google set it up so they could put the information about their projects all online. They could do a video, they could do a slideshow once they had done their experiments and it was an easy way for everybody to be able to see and enjoy them. And did Google bring the finalists out to California? Yeah. So the launch event was in New York at the Google offices there. And the finalist event was on Monday, July 11th. And actually it was, it, it started on July 10th for the finalists. There were 15 finalists, five in each of those three categories. The students were flown in from all over the world. There were, there was a student from Singapore, a student from India, um, one from uh, South Africa, and students from the U.S. and Canada as well among those 15 finalists. And the winners turned out to be all young women. Yeah, as, as it turned out. So the 13 to 14-year-old age category, the winner was Lauren Hodge. And Lauren's project, which was a you know, fascinating, simple idea, was she, she was, had been learning about proteins in school and in her biology classes. And she noticed that when her mom marinated chicken in, um, in lemon juice, the chicken edges turned white. So she noticed something was going on with the proteins in the chicken. She learned out what was, what was happening there. Near the same time that she noticed that with her mom cooking, she also had learned of a lawsuit against some fast food companies about carcinogens from the grilling of chicken. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we all, this is not new news um, for folks who are listening. When you barbecue things, the charred pieces that end up on your on your chicken or your beef or your whatever have some carcinogenic compounds in them and you know they're just small abouts but they're there the delicious the delicious part that's the that's the key yeah. so lauren i remember in her project put a piece of fried chicken and a piece of grilled chicken on the first slide and said which one is healthier mm -hmm. which was kind of a provocative way to to lead into it so she had the lawsuit in mind about you know certain fast food companies that had been um you know that were were being sued for the potential carcinogens under, I believe, a California regulation. And she noticed this happening in her kitchen, and she wondered, wonder if it makes a difference what kind of marinades you put on the food. Mm -hmm. and why don't I check that? And when she looked into it, she actually found nobody had tested that specifically. So she tested uh, lemon juice, soy sauce, salt water, brown sugar, and oil, olive oil. And she tested how many carcinogenic, you know, how many carcinogenic compounds were then produced on the meat itself mm -hmm. as a result of the marinades. And I keep mentioning lemon juice because that one was the the best as far as being the most helpful. Now, of course, Lauren would be the first one to tell anybody that this needs to be replicated sure. and, and so on. But what, what a creative and very simple idea. So that was in the um, the 13 to 14-year-old age category. And Lauren's from the U.S.? Um, Lauren's from the U.S. And then um, the next winner was Naomi Shaw. And Naomi's idea, which was also had the virtue of never having been really tried, or at least not that, that we know of, was um, she, she noticed the increasing rates of asthma in the developed world in particular, but, but everywhere also, and wondered whether, given that people spend a lot of time indoors, where in theory anyway, you could manage your exposures to things a little bit better, you know, how did that, how did that look? You know, what happened? So she measured a couple of pollutants that are very common in indoor air. And, and maybe people all know this already, but 
we spend something like 90% of our days indoors, a typical person. So this is obviously a big exposure area. And she, she checked a, a kind of a particulate of a certain size and a volatile organic compounds. These are the gases that are released by new things, like mm-hmm. when you unroll a new carpet or when you just had uh, new kitchen uh, cabinets installed, things mm-hmm. like that, that make a little smell. This is also responsible for that new car smell that everybody likes, mm-hmm. right? And she found that, uh, indeed, these two uh, indoor air pollutants in particular reduce the ability of asthmatics to inhale and exhale. You know, mm-hmm. the, the way that's measured is something called exhalatory rate, ex- exhalatory rate. And, and she couldn't, you know, when she, when she measured with actual patients, I think slightly more than a hundred of them, she found that these influence their, you know, their lung capacity. The interesting finding there is, of course, there are medicines that you can use, but then why medicate if you can remove the pollutants from, um, you know, from the indoor environment? And her approach has you know, she's now gone on to, she's on a, a, a mayor's advisory board and where she lives and she's trying to get people to remove the fending materials from the houses. You know, this is very ambitious. Of course, the Clean Air Act addresses many such things, mm-hmm. but in principle, what an interesting idea, remove the, the things that are causing the problem rather than actually giving the patient medicines and drugs. Maybe you don't have to if you can remove certain things and you're spending most of your time indoors, right? And Naomi is also from the U.S.? Yes, Naomi, as it turned out, also from the U.S. And the um, 17 to 18-year-old category winner was Shri Bose, also a U.S. student. What Shri did is, is she was trying to explore a particular kind of ovarian cancer therapy, a drug called cisplatin. And the problem with cisplatin is it's very effective for the 21,000 women or so that are diagnosed with ovarian cancer every year. But then the cancer cells over the course of the disease develop resistance to the cisplatin. And she wondered what could be the mechanisms behind that. And so she decided to explore um, AMP kinase, which is an energy protein of the cell. And she wondered whether it had some role in the cancer resistance that was developed. And she discovered that indeed it, it did. And if she, if you altered the, um, the drugs that were given or the, um, the compounds that were given along with the, uh, with the cisplatin, you could avoid the resistance. So it suggests a potential new therapy, right? a new course of therapy. Of course, this was in cell culture, so it's not it can't be rushed into any kind of clinical application yet. Right. Of course, you can't rush this right into use in patients. And Sri would be the first person to say so. This was done in cell cultures. But it, it suggests an intriguing potential therapy, you know, regimen adjustment. And also, it gives us a little bit more insight into the mechanisms of the cancer itself, which is mm-hmm. always useful for a variety of reasons. So all three of the winners were young women. Is it what is there anything to be... To take away from that, or, you know, we don't, I don't know what the applicant pool was like. Uh, is it just, and, you know, if all three were young men, we probably wouldn't even be commenting on it. But does it mean anything? Is Larry Summers upset? Does, does it, you know, is, is there a take home message or just are, are young women getting more interested in science and doing higher quality work? I mean, as a young woman yourself. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, as a, you know, as, as Vince Surf, the co-inventor of the internet who is also one of the judges and, and the Google, uh, I think his title is Google's chief evangelist of internet evangelist. Vince Cerf said he was secretly pleased by this. And you're right. You know, people wouldn't be commenting on it if it were three boys. And indeed, of the 15 finalists, six of them 
were young ladies. So there were the majority of, of boys in that pool as well. But, but the thing that, a thing about this and the judges, and there were several quite, you know, science luminaries in our judge pool, uh, quite apart from me, I might add. We did not know who the winners would be until we had done the judging on the criteria that Google gave us. So one of them was impact. And we've just talked about three things that have, I think everybody can agree, pretty high impact. Another was originality. Was it a novel idea? And these all were, were very novel ideas. Another one was excellence of scientific method, all things being equal. How well did these students do with their scientific process? And last was their communication skills. How well did they bring the science they did out to, you know, to us as, as judges and indeed to the public at large because the materials they submitted were publicly available and have been publicly available for some months now. So those were the four criteria we were paying attention to and we literally did not know who the winners would be until we had gone through the process. And then we looked at the wall. I remember being in the judging room saying, wow, three, three girls, neat, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't, it, was by no particular design. We were instructed sternly to, um, you know, to make sure merit was considered above all else because really with science, we consider merit above all else. More Nobel Prize winners from Lindau soon. In the meantime, get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out the slideshow about the construction of New York City's 2nd Avenue subway, which has been under construction for so long that all the usual giant lizards, demonic entities, and other monsters that such massive projects usually free from imprisonment to wreak havoc on the city died of old age. Hey, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.